Just a quick message before the episode gets underway. The Aurora Renewables Summit London is returning on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of June. Book your ticket now to hear from leading experts in the energy industry as they assess the opportunities and challenges within the UK and the wider European renewable sector. You will also benefit from unparalleled networking opportunities. We look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged. My name is Anise Gambold. I'm the Head of Research for European Hydrogen and Global Energy Markets at Aurora Energy Research. I'm delighted to welcome Catherine Raw as our guest. Catherine Raw is the Managing Director of SSE Thermal, as well as a member of SSE's Executive Committee. Catherine has been at SSE since April 2022 before which she was the Chief Operating Officer for North America and Chief Financial Officer for the international metals and mining firm Barrick Gold. Before Barrick Gold, Catherine was both a Managing Director and Fund Manager at BlackRock. And before starting work, she attained a Master's in Natural Sciences from the University of Cambridge and a Master's in Mineral Project Appraisal from Imperial College London, She also holds the designation of Chartered Financial Analyst. So a little bit about SSE Thermal. SSE Thermal is the arm of SSE that operates in the UK and Ireland, running flexible power generation assets, as well as gas storage. The topic we'll focus on today is moving to a net zero power sector, which is timely because we're publishing this podcast episode during the beginning of the United Nations Conference of the Parties, otherwise known this year as COP28, which is being held in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Whilst going net zero is a global endeavor, like in many things, the devil is in the detail, and what needs to be done is detailed planning and action on a sector-by-sector basis and a country-by-country basis. Therefore, today we'll mainly focus on the UK and Irish power sectors. Starting with the UK, the government has set its carbon targets, Currently, the UK is aiming for a net zero carbon economy by 2050, a target that it set in June 2019. But for the power sector only, it currently wants a net zero electricity grid even earlier by 2035, which it announced in October 2021. Hello, Catherine. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you very much for joining. So the first question that I have for you is on the UK targets. What do you think of the targets? And what are your observations on progress towards these targets? Well, thanks for having me. And on that question, we welcome these targets. I think it's hugely important and encouraging that we've got cross-party consensus on the need to decarbonize the power system. Um, And actually, when you look into the detail, there's pretty much broad consensus, whether between the Conservatives and the Labour on the technologies required, you know, the roadmap of how to decarbonise the power sector. So so on the whole, um, that's a huge positive. Having said that, targets on their own are not enough. And 
what we're struggling with when we look at either the current government or potentially even the Labour alternative is the roadmap. Exactly how do we get there given the challenges and the relatively short timeframes that we're talking about? So the current government, as you say, is 2035, um, but Labour are out there saying they want to decarbonise the power system by 2030. And so you know, relative to the target being put out in 2019, progress over the last four years has been really quite slow. Some of that's COVID and the pandemic. Uh, some of that is, you know, global economy. Um, but when you think about what has to be achieved, the build out of renewable power that's going to be required, um, the grid investment that's going to it's going to take the reforms to planning and grid connection uh, that are required, uh, and then the hard-to-abate final 10 20% of flexible technologies that are required, actually starting to build the infrastructure, or not only build the infrastructure, put the um, policy and frameworks in place, negotiate the contracts in order for the projects to then take FID, and then actually build the infrastructure and then get these projects up and running. You know, when you look at all of that timeline that's required, um, 2035 looks ambitious, let alone 2030. Excellent. So I've picked out a few pieces from my colleagues in the GB Power team. Incidentally, they are currently working on a report that they'll publish next month on the Great Britain's pathway to net zero. Um, and you mentioned all of the challenges that it will take to get to net zero. I've pulled out a few numbers um, that we have from our net zero scenario. So we're expecting power demand to increase quite a lot between now and 2035 in our net zero scenario, where power demand will increase by about 50%. And we have solar, onshore and offshore capacity combined, almost trebling, and peak demand also growing as well. Of course, what you mentioned is a lot has to be done on renewables as well as planning and grid expansion. And with this kind of growth in demand and renewables, one of the key missing pieces that I've seen SSC Thermal working on is this sort of low carbon flexible generation that many people kind of ignore, but is so essential to meeting power demand as well as allowing for this growth in renewable powers and renewable power generation capacity. So I think this is a good segue to your plans, Catherine, and what SSC Thermal is doing. Could you explain what SSC Thermal is doing in terms of flexible power generation and its plans? Absolutely. Um, so as you say, we've got a bit of an insight as SSE into the electricity system and what's going to be required to stabilise it. So I'll do a bit of a plug for SSE at the moment. We're, we're building... Um, the largest offshore wind farm in the world in Doggerbank. We've just energised Sea Green uh, up in Scotland, so that's now operating now, another offshore wind farm. Um, so what we see is, uh, you know, the increasing impact of intimate, intermittent um, renewables generation on the system. And what are the implications of that? Um, and how do you keep this, the grid stable? Because we can see, you know, fluctuations, oscillations in the grid. You can see the uh, requirement for inertia. Uh, all of these things uh, we get an insight to as operators of the system, as operators of renewables, but also as operators of current gas power stations. 
And so when you think about the future and you think about an electricity system that's going to be, you know, significantly dependent on renewables generation, be it wind or solar, uh, you then say, okay, so what's what's your backup? What what is going to provide um uh power when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining? Um what ultimately is going to provide the stability and the inertia services to the system. And and what's interesting is our experience in Ireland, which is probably, you know, it's a microcosm of the UK system insofar as it's much smaller, but it has a higher penetration of wind that you you begin to see this dynamic take place where you you have quite severe uh, instances of, of, of even amber alerts coming through where they just don't have the backup generation to compensate when the wind suddenly drops and you have to react very quickly. So what that's led us to is, is understanding, okay, so how do we solve this problem? Now, there are two technologies at the moment that we're driven, that we're, we're sort of focusing on. And the reason we're doing this is because we're we're relatively agnostic as to what is the right low carbon technology to provide that flexibility. What we recognize is that we just need to do it quickly, that to deliver by 2035, you need to get these things built and you need, whether they're bridging or finalizing or final technologies, uh, you need to start getting them up and running. So the first is carbon capture and storage. So this is essentially taking your existing gas power station. Uh, so we've just commissioned the world's, oh, Europe's most efficient um, gas power station at Kidby 2. So you're taking the latest in um, highly efficient gas turbine technology and you're just plugging on a carbon capture circuit to the back of it. So taking the off gases, cleaning them up. to So it's pure CO2 and then piping that CO2 uh, and storing it. Uh, and the UK is um, very lucky relative to some other jurisdictions insofar as it does have depleted gas fields. It's got the North Sea, it's got the Irish Sea, it's able to um, take that CO2 and store it. And what that does is it effectively allows you to relatively quickly, once you've built that CO2 infrastructure, be able to use current technology, CCG technologies, to be able to deliver flexibility. Now, Chile, clearly, the challenge with that and a lot of the criticism that comes from that is you're still locking in fossil fuels in order to provide that flexibility. So in parallel, we're also looking at hydrogen technology. So this is effectively using hydrogen as your energy carrier in the same way as you use gas or diesel, that there's stores of energy. In, and But the way in which you produce that hydrogen can, in theory, over time be completely fossil fuel free because you can create green hydrogen from ultimately um, cracking water uh, and using renewable electricity to do that through electrolyzers. Now, the challenge with that is the scale up and the technology is still very nascent. And so in the interim step, you would you could potentially use blue hydrogen. Blue hydrogen is breaking methane. So again, using gas in order to create hydrogen, but it could give you volumes in the near term to prove hydrogen to power, to, to ultimately build out uh, the necessary power stations to provide flexibility at scale, but over time could become completely fossil fuel free. So, so those are the two technologies that we're looking at to be able to provide that backup flexibility to a renewables-led system. So we have two CCS projects, uh, power CCS projects. One is located in the East Coast cluster. This is Kidby 3. Um, so it's in the Humber, 
uh, and it's part of the industrial cluster process, the track one uh, strand, which um, uh, has already identified that the high net cluster on the West Coast and the East Coast cluster uh, will have this necessary CO2 infrastructure. So KIDP3 is one of them. And then the other is um, Peterhead CCS, which is located up in near Peterhead <laughs> in Scotland and is part of the Acorn Scottish cluster. So those are, which has been announced as a track two cluster along with Viking. So those are our two CCS projects. We've also just submitted um, two hydrogen uh, projects. One is a co-located hydrogen electrolyzer project up at Gordon Bush. So this proves the archetype of taking renewable wind, uh, a renewable wind farm, and deconstraining it effectively. That's a word. Uh, re re reducing the constraint because when you don't need uh, the wind power, you can use it to um, generate hydrogen via an electrolyzer. So effectively, you're taking advantage of low electricity prices to produce hydrogen. So that's one project. Another project, which is really to prove the value chain of hydrogen, is the Albra Hydrogen Pathfinder project. And this is looking at an electrolyzer, one cabin of gas storage, and uh, an OCGT that will be powered off hydrogen. And the purpose of that is to illustrate the system value of storage and ultimately being able to justify hydrogen to power, given it's relatively inefficient. Producing hydrogen from electricity to then burn it to generate electricity doesn't really make much sense. But what it does allow you to do is load shift. It allows you effectively to use your storage as your buffer to store hydrogen. And so being able to do that at a proof of concept scale, so, so so significant, we're talking about a 35 megawatt electrolyzer um, and a 50 megawatt OCGT. Um, but what it does is effectively say, well, how could you scale this up over time if you have sufficient volumes and you have sufficient storage, which ultimately then sets up for some of our longer term projects, which would be uh, fully hydrogen enabled uh, CCGT, uh, as well as hydrogen storage at Albra with the potential of 320 gigawatt hours of storage as a first phase and even growing that significantly to over a terawatt hour over time. So, so that, in a nutshell, <laughs> are all of our projects that are really to try and drive um, the concepts of CCS and hydrogen in the UK. And then just finally, we do have a, a two contracted projects in Ireland, which illustrate the same strategy of trying to identify what are the bridging technologies that will allow us to reduce the level of carbon in current operations, but given uncertainty and lack of infrastructure um, over ultimately what is the low carbon technology. One of the things we're doing in Ireland is biofuels, so hydro-treated vegetable oil in place of diesel to operate pica plants effectively. Um, uh, that will be hydrogen ready. So the turbines will be able to take hydrogen, but Ireland at the, at, at the moment doesn't yet have any policy on hydrogen and also uh, lacks the infrastructure. It's further behind the UK in terms of driving hydrogen as a, as a low carbon flexible source. Right. So you've mentioned three pretty big topics. So I wanted to go through them in turn. Um, power CCS. So obviously we've had power generation using natural gas for a very long mm -hmm. time. We've had carbon capture and storage, mainly in industry, also for a very long time. So it sounds like a magical solution to put those two together. Um, 
what are the challenges or what do you need to really get those off the ground and how could they help us? Will they be here in time to reach the 2035 targets, Power CCS? Um, that's, that's a big question. So so <laughs> what, are the, what are the foundations in order to get Power CCS by 2035? So the first is infrastructure. So in order to be able to even build uh, and deliver a power CCS project, you need a pipe to connect to. So we're beginning to see the signs of that. Government have committed £20 billion to the first um, phase of CCS, and that includes, and they've effectively committed to that at Hynet and East Coast Cluster, as I've said. But at the moment, on the East Coast Cluster, those pipes only go into Teesside. Um, but at least you've got some CO2 infrastructure going in. So the second is then a contract, a dispatchable power agreement that would ultimately reward you or incentivize you for the extra cost associated with building uh, a carbon capture circuit on the back end of the CCGT because the current capacity mechanism um, doesn't do that other than having to pay for the cost of carbon. Um, that's a whole other topic for a uh, uh, for a podcast, uh, given where... Um, uh, UK carbon pricing is, but but the economics aren't there to justify um, that capital investment. So dispatchable power agreements is what the government's set out as a framework for that. And we do have one power CCS project in Teesside uh, currently under negotiation. So so infrastructure, uh, sort of framework, policy framework, contract, uh, contractual arrangements. Um, and then the other is really the technical element. Whilst carbon capture and storage and even power CCS, particularly off coal, is a very tried and tested technology. Understanding exactly how it's going to work for dispatchable, flexible power is something we've been doing a lot of work on. So we've got um, a program uh, with government and ACON called Focus, which is to look at uh, how do you maintain the capture rates up at over 95% as you ramp up and ramp down uh, in order to provide the flexibility that uh, ultimately a CCGT provides today. And the second thing is around the CO2 store. And ultimately, how does the CO2 store cope with intermittent CO2 coming in and out? And how mature does it need to be in order to be able to cope with that? And that that's a whole other topic in terms of geological um challenges associated with the with the CO2 stores. But but those would be the two the three elements. So um infrastructure, uh financial um frameworks. Uh, and incentivization, and then the third is um, the third is the technological aspect of it. But I would say, in all cases, what we now have is a pathway. We now have reasonable maturity. It's just a case of getting the projects approved and built. And at this moment in time, there isn't a single power CCS project under construction. And what we have, if you look at the targets, um, you've got um, government wanting. 10 gigawatts of power CCS, and, and I would expect them to come out with something similar in, in their um, in their updated CCS vision uh, at the end of this year. Uh, you've got our own analysis saying you would probably need seven to nine gigawatts of power CCS by 2035 in order to meet um, uh, the flexibility targets along with hydrogen as well. Um, and so the challenge really is is not so much 
that we don't understand what's required. It's that we're just not moving fast enough on, on the power CCS side of things. Okay, it sounds like there's a lot to be done and there is money to be spent. You mentioned 20 billion package, but no spades in the ground, as they say, happening yet. Um, but you are expecting and, and, some announcements. Absolutely. And what I should just clarify is that 20 billion is for CCS as a whole. Mm -hmm. So that is for infrastructure and for industrial CCS. So I think what's interesting is carbon capture and storage is seen as a solution to decarbonize hard to abate industries, as well as providing flexibility to the power system. And so what we're seeing is ultimately a highly competitive environment to try and access a limited pool of funding and a limited level of infrastructure. And so the big question mark is where does power CCS sit in terms of priority over the next five to seven years um, relative to other industrial uses? So whether it's blue hydrogen or whether it's cement uh, or other hard to obey industries, uh, that's going to be a big um, question mark, I think, uh, for government policy over the next, um, like I say, five to seven years. I see. So there is this this pot of money, but you are competing against other sectors, which is, I guess, partly why you're also looking at, at hydrogen. As That's a solution. exactly right. So hydrogen um, is a topic that we're looking at at Aurora as well. So I didn't mention the hydrogen targets. The latest UK hydrogen target is to have 10 gigawatts of low carbon hydrogen generation capacity, named low carbon because they're looking at all types of hydrogen generation, not just coming from electrolyzers. At Aurora, we are looking at the two factors that you, you Catherine, mentioned. So one is how can we pair intermittent renewables together with electrolyzers in order to make better use of the renewables. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with the UK power sector, it is getting more and more challenging, A, to get funding for renewable generation capacity, and B, to actually get the grid connection very long waits for grid connections. So sometimes it might be possible to have renewables paired with an electrolyzer in order to have a, an attractive internal rate of return for the combined projects and potentially also achieve a pretty low cost of hydrogen production, hopefully no, low enough, maybe combined with subsidies to make it attractive for users of energy to start using hydrogen as a fuel. So we are looking at levelized cost of hydrogen, into IRRs for these kinds of renewables projects. And Catherine, you also mentioned load shifting and hydrogen to power. It's a topic that we've looked at particularly in GB because of these low carbon targets for the power sector where we might need to have hydrogen peakers and hydrogen gas plants in order to add backup low carbon power generation capacity. So definitely an interesting topic. And I know that SSC Thermal has been involved in the hydrogen allocation round one for the Albra Pathfinder hydrogen project. Um, so what is happening in terms of hydrogen in the UK and in terms of your projects? And if you could explain what you mean by hydrogen clusters, that would also be very useful. What we've seen is the government's focus up until recently has very much been focused on it. If you build it, they will come type strategy around hydrogen production. So setting up um, production targets, setting up um, these competitive allocation rounds for electrolyzer um, production. So HAR1 um, is 
underway right at the moment. Uh, HAR2 is to follow shortly. So HAR1's ambition is to deliver, um, and that's sorry, when I say HAR, that's the hydrogen allocation round for el- electrolytic hydrogen. Um, uh, that's aiming to get 250 megawatts up and running by N25, mid-26. And then you've, that's followed by HAR2, which is another 750 megawatts. And, and then that will ultimately be the stepping stone that gets you to the 10 uh, gigawatt target. Um, so in addition to that, we've, we are now beginning to see movement on business models for transport and storage. And they've stated they want to get a hydrogen business model uh, for storage out by 2025. Um, and then we're also consulting now on hydrogen to power. And they are now looking at other end users. So the key really uh, for hydrogen and to make it work is to try and set up these ecosystems uh, that that are value chain driven from production to storage to offtake. Um, and where they're focusing that on is very much on those industrial clusters. So, so the industrial cluster and the hydrogen cluster, they don't need necessarily need to be the same, but they that's kind of the way it's going because of the nature of the user, the off-taker of hydrogen and the off-taker of hydrogen at scale. And so your big users are potentially industry looking at um, centralized heat and power plants where they could use hydrogen instead of gas. You're looking at hydrogen being a a direct constituent in the chemicals industry and the refining industry. Um, And you're looking at things like hydrogen to power where you're burning hydrogen instead of gas. So, So that's why it's it's often now moving towards uh, the industrial clusters. The other thing that we've seen is that the storage, the gas storage that exists, salt cavern storage, not coincidentally, is also located near some of these big industrial clusters because, you know, the origins of the gas economy uh, coupled these two things together. And so it's not a surprise that a hydrogen economy, you would also need to see these things coupled together. And so that's where we're seeing the potential for hydrogen storage, both in Cheshire and also in in, uh, uh, in Yorkshire, where our assets are. Um, so that that's what you see at hydrogen clusters. I think what's more complex is the question of how do you then scale that over time? Because other big users of hydrogen, potentially the transport industry, potentially the aviation industry, aren't necessarily located where those industrial clusters are. So then you're looking at a network of infrastructure and potential hydrogen pipeline infrastructure and how is that going to to scale up over time. So so these are big topics and require big regional planning and strategic planning. Uh, And it all needs to be done incredibly quickly, again, in order to be able to achieve these decarbonisation targets. Um, But I think uh, what we're beginning to see is the... Um, collaboration of industry and different industrial users coupling with obvious um, locations of where you can see production and storage coming from that is creating natural clusters. uh, Yeah, that's partly what we're seeing as well, because we did a study on hydrogen transport and hydrogen storage. And you can't just look at the levelized cost of hydrogen production you might get relatively low costs. But once you need to factor in transporting that hydrogen to a hydrogen refueling station or trying to deliver hydrogen on a flat production basis to an industrial user that really needs Monday to Sunday, every single hour, the same amount of hydrogen, you need to add in potentially hydrogen storage, like from Aldborough. 
uh, and that can add up your costs a lot. So really to keep the cost down at the beginning before we have some sort of liquid, fully ready hydrogen economy, these hydrogen clusters are really the, the most feasible way technologically, but also economically to make it worthwhile to start using hydrogen in your sector. Um, going back to the Irish plants, um, so you have those two Irish OCGTs that you that won in the T-4 allocation rounds. So they're called um, Tarbert and Platin. So I understood that they'll both be OCGTs running on hydro-treated vegetable oil, or HVO for short. They'll be online in a few years' time. And it sounds like some, again, a magic solution to be using 100% sustainable biofuel to produce power. Obviously, that's in Ireland. So why isn't it the right choice for the United Kingdom? Well, the real problem is scale. Um, and Ireland is a much smaller uh, power market than the UK. And when you look at the um, capacity gap and what it requires, it requires these OCGT pica type plants rather than large scale flexibility um, in order to fill these short term gaps when the wind's not blowing and when it doesn't have sufficient resources or it needs backup to in case, you know, some of the CCGTs go down. So we also operate Great Ireland as CCGT in Ireland. And so what, what we effectively did and, and, you know, the government as part of the sort of consultation and planning is understand, okay, what, what exactly is it that the country needs in order to, to meet its flexibility requirements over the next decade? And so then you say, okay, what you're looking at is OCGTs that aren't likely to be running more than 500 hours a year. So they're just there for those cold, dark nights when the wind's not blowing uh, and you need to be able to uh, keep the system stable. And so on that basis, HVO did seem a good solution because you're not looking at ultimately using this as a continuous baseload type feed source. And one of the key things for us is being able to guarantee the sustainability of that feed source. So for us, it was a neat solution to a very specific problem in Ireland. And um, what it also allowed us to do is take existing technologies um, that uh, don't have the same first-of-a-kind risk to them and apply them quickly under the existing mechanisms that already exist in Ireland. So we weren't requiring policy change or policy incentives in order to support that technology. We were able to take OCGTs that are have already had tested testing on hydrogen. So they're all able, already able to say they're hydrogen ready. So what you know, we've won these contracts for, for 26, 27 um, uh, time period. So we can take existing technology that's already been proven by the OEMs as hydrogen ready, that is also able to cope with uh, HVO and the spec of HVO, and we can build them now. So, so this challenge, and it, it's very illustrative of the challenge for any of these technologies, is that there's an order in which you can do things. You know, there's no point, you know, just coming out with an incentive mechanism if the technology isn't there to feed into it. There's a feedback loop in all of these things. And so what we've done is taken where the technology is currently advanced sufficiently to date. We found a feed source that still allows it to be lower carbon than our existing. Uh, we're still running, as I said, a gas pad, a CCGT, and we run other distant peakers, embedded fleet, what we're trying to do is with each step, with every new build that SNC is, is building, it gets us closer and closer to this net zero pathway while still delivering ultimately what is the uh, 
power trilemma of affordability and security of supply. Ireland needs to keep its lights on. It has a challenge. At the moment, they're building emergency generation, diesel generation, in order to just deliver power in the next four years. What we're saying is for the for the period after that, the decades after that, we're able to provide something that will bridge us to ultimately what is the net zero solution rather than locking in carbon. That's the strategy. So, so to answer your question more specifically, Ireland is a relatively unique um, paradigm in which you have a small energy system facing this intermittency challenge that we've talked about and the need for flexibility back up. The gap that needs to be filled is relatively short hours running, uh, and therefore you're able to source that through HVO rather than needing to scale it up significantly. And it's further behind from a policy perspective than the UK is in any alternative technology. Now, when you look at the UK, the kind of flexibility gap that you have needs flexibility at scale. It can't just be batteries at four-hour type um, um, uh, storage. It can't be small pika plants across the country. You're actually there are periods where it could be two weeks of still weather uh, where you need to supply the system. So it does need some of these point source, scalable point source flexibility technologies, and it's already advanced um, the policy framework in order to do that. It just needs to advance a bit quicker. So you mentioned with the Irish project, mm-hmm. they're hydrogen ready. Mm-hmm. So I understand that means that they'll just stop running on HVO and they could run on 100% hydrogen. And that could be also the case for gas networks. Um, and you mentioned in the term hydrogen ready, um, would you suggest that any projects being built now need to be hydrogen ready for when we do have a CCS and hydrogen economy? Or is it really just certain projects are tabbed to be hydrogen ready? Well, I think the nuance here is what is the definition of hydrogen ready? And we've got to be very careful that we don't use that to the point that people don't believe you. Uh, And what I mean by that is the turbines themselves. So in the case of the biofuels plants, what we're saying is that the OCGT gas turbines that we're putting in have been tested and are hydrogen ready. They can run on hydrogen. But what we don't have is the fuel source for hydrogen or the infrastructure, the storage, the pipes in order to be able to deliver that. But you can invest down the line when you have the right frameworks in place, when you have the right um, uh, maturity of policy infrastructure and the learnings from the rest of the world. Then in theory, these could then run on hydrogen. So, So that's what we mean in Ireland to say that those OCGTs are hydrogen ready. Now, flip that to the UK and say, okay, well, what does it mean when you say uh, uh, a CCGT could be hydrogen ready? It's the same thing. The the technological complexity associated with burning hydrogen is relatively known and relatively understood. It's the nature of the burners. Um, it, it, you know, the tweaks that you make on the turbine itself are straightforward. What you then have to do is all the balance of plant. You have to scale your balance of plant differently because hydrogen is less dense than gas. You've got to ensure that you have the infrastructure to supply that hydrogen, to supply that hydrogen in sufficient quantities. Are we talking about 100% hydrogen or are we talking about a feed? And I've got to be careful about the word blending because blending, everyone always goes to pipe networks and heating. And that's not what I mean. As a fuel source going into your turbine, you can go from anywhere from 100% natural gas to 100% hydrogen and you can blend in between. 
And depending upon whether it's less than 30%, less than 50%, less than 75% or higher, then the level of investment you need to make in your plant changes, the level of investment in the balance of plant changes, and also the level of carbon emissions reduces because hydrogen is less dense than methane. So a 50% blend doesn't say 50% reduction in emissions because you need to burn more hydrogen relative to the amount of gas in order to get the same power output. So there's a whole load of complexity in this. And I hope by just me talking about this, it tells you how much work you know we're already doing on trying to understand this. But I think there is a feasible scenario that says, well, while we wait for that infrastructure to be put in place, we're going to need that flexibility. And so how do you how do you approach that? Do you just run your current inefficient gas plant that's 20, 30 years old, that is becoming less and less reliable and therefore puts the system at risk because it may not be able to switch on when it's required? Or do you invest in new uh, hydrogen-ready, hydrogen-enabled technology that is properly designed and engineered and laid out and has the appropriate steel and balance of plants to be able to take hydrogen such that once the production has scaled up and once the pipes are in place, you can then switch very quickly. And so really, this is how do you get to a net zero decarbonized power system by 2035 or 2030 the fastest? Do you sit and wait or do you do things in parallel? And so that's the question that we're asking ourselves as technology providers, as responsible operators in the power system, is what are the decisions that we can make and what are the projects that we can propose that will get there fastest? Well, it sounds like to me that given how many projects SSC Thermal is driving or is a part of, you're really going for the other option, which is work on the project, examine how they're going to work rather than waiting. Because 2030 is is not far away. It's basically uh, in six years' time. Just before you end, if you think a CCGT on average takes four years to build, then in fact we don't have six years, we've got two years to find the answer. And next year is an election year. So that removes you one year. So so this is why, you know, this conversation is so critically timed is because as we face the next 18 months, we're going to have to be making these decisions in order to get these things built in time. Yes, it's an election year in the UK next year. And thinking ahead. So what I like to end on is what's next waiting for um, either coming out from you, your, you guys or coming out from the government that we as the audience um, need to be looking out for? Well, in the immediate term, we've got some big things coming out um, before the end of the year. So you've, you've in theory got um, some news coming out from government on HAL1. So what projects are they going to select in order to deliver that first 250 megawatts of production? Now, what we would hope is at least one of our two projects is in that list of um, uh, of projects. And in particular, being able to prove the archetype of hydrogen to power and the role that storage plays is going to be significant. I think we've got an updated CCOS vision coming from government, which instead of just talking about track one and track two out to 2030, it's then going to look at what comes post-2030 and how do you scale up CCS, both the existing identified clusters, but also at other clusters. Uh, We've got announcements on the track one expansion and what 
the step next steps of that look like, track two, and ultimately how do emitter projects start to move into and get selected for the track two projects. So that's all coming, I'd say, in the next six months. And then I think as we go into the election, really starting to get some clarity on uh, the regional planning and the spatial planning, how how uh, grid reform, how planning reform, how strategic national infrastructure projects get treated and whether or not that will allow for an accelerated timeline to be able to meet either 2030 or 2035. Um, and then more broadly on our own uh, pipeline, what I would hope is that not only can we show we have CCS and um, hydrogen projects coming through, but we're also looking at other solutions to be able to deliver into net zero. Great, a good summary. Um, and on the Aurora side, in terms of COP28, we are releasing a few um, short reports about the COP28, building up to COP28, but also any outcomes from COP28, comparing them with Aurora's forecast. I mentioned my colleagues in the GB Power team are working on a report about the country's pathway to net zero, so keep an eye out for that. And in terms of hydrogen auctions, we also are tracking the HAR1 results, as well as any rules being announced for HAR2. Um, and we're also looking at the EU hydrogen auctions and looking at that in more detail again next month. Thank you very much, Catherine, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. This is Catherine Raw's second time joining Energy Unplugged. So if you haven't heard the first one, just look up Catherine Raw on any podcast platform. Thank you to the audience for listening and hopefully see you next time. That was Anise Gambold, Head of Research for European Hydrogen and Global Energy Markets for Aurora, talking to Catherine Raw, Managing Director at SSE Thermal and member of SSE's Executive Committee. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.